Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to be here tonight. Thankful for the things that uh, we are uh, learning through this uh, series of videos on uh, the nature of Jesus. We pray, Father, that um, uh, these are things that will help to strengthen our faith and uh, that we will learn things that we can share with others. We pray, Father, that you would uh, bless uh, the other classes that are meeting also tonight. And we pray that in all things your will would be done and your name honored and glorified. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Suppose you are sitting in McDonald's and a man rushes into the restaurant. The restaurant is crowded. It's a Saturday morning. People are there for breakfast. And this man stands up and says, I need everyone's attention. And you turn your attention to the man. He says, I've got a story to tell you. And he proceeds to tell you a story about his friend. And supposedly his friend died several weeks earlier. And three days after his friend died, that friend supposedly came back from the dead. And this man says that you should go climb Mount Everest because the resurrected friend of his says that in two weeks he's coming back to Mount Everest. And you look at the man and you think, you're crazy. You don't believe that a man two weeks ago or three weeks ago in the year 2007 came back from the dead? In fact, if you read about stories of resurrections that happened a hundred years ago, supposedly, generally speaking, you don't believe in those. If you read about resurrections that happened 500 years ago, you don't believe those or a thousand years ago. In fact, you think the people who suggest those are deluded, are almost not right in their heads. But then, then you get to the story of Jesus. A resurrection that supposedly happened 2,000 years ago. You wouldn't believe the one at McDonald's, but you do believe Jesus. But why is that? There are several people who come to the story of Jesus and they demand that it's impossible for the story of Jesus to be true. I want to read to you a statement by a man named Richard Carrier. Richard Carrier wrote an article, a paper, actually, it's very long, titled, Why I Don't Buy the Resurrection. And in that particular article, Richard Carrier said this. He said, No amount of argument can convince me to trust a 2,000-year-old second-hand report over what I see myself directly here and now with my own eyes. If I observe facts which entail that I will cease to exist when I die, then the Jesus story can never override that observation, being infinitely weaker as a proof. And yet all the evidence before my senses confirms my mortality. A 2,000-year-old second-hand tale from the backwaters of an illiterate and ignorant land can never overpower these facts. I see no one returning to life after their brain has completely died from the lack of oxygen. I have had no conversations with spirits of the dead. What I see is quite the opposite of everything this tall tale claims. How can it command more respect than my own two eyes? It cannot. 
See, Richard Carrier says, I don't care what you show me. I don't care what kind of historical evidence. I don't care what kind of eyewitness testimony. I don't care how accurate the documents are that record and preserve the story about Jesus. You're not going to convince me that anybody's ever come back from the dead because I've never seen it. The first problem that you have to get around in the discussion of the resurrection is the idea that miracles are impossible. You see, the modern day skeptic says that I've never seen someone come back from the dead. My experimental observation is the most powerful form of evidence that could possibly be, and so I'll never believe in a resurrection. But you know what happens when you press the skeptic on that point? You see, everything believes, every person believes in something that they haven't seen, whether they want to admit it or not. When you ask the skeptic, who generally is an atheist and an evolutionist, when you ask them, where did life come from? They say, well, it evolved from a primordial slime. And then you ask, have you ever seen life evolve? Mm, no. When you ask them where the universe came from, they say, well, it came from a big bang, a big explosion multiplied billions of years ago. And you say, have you ever seen an explosion that could do that? You know what they say? Mm, no. There are things that the skeptic believes that the skeptic has never seen. There are things that the follower of Christ believes that he or she has never seen. Was anyone present at the formation and creation of the world? No. But just because a person has never seen God create the universe, does that mean it's impossible for God to do that? Certainly not. The idea that the skeptic presents that I've never seen it and so I don't believe it is an idea that even he or she cannot follow through with. And secondly, what's the point of the resurrection? If people every other week were coming back from the dead at the hospital down the street and you stood up and you said, there is a Messiah, His name was Jesus, He came back from the dead. You know what the skeptic would say? If resurrections happened on a weekly basis here in the United States of America or anywhere during the year 2007. Well, what's so special about a resurrection? People come back from the dead all the time. That wouldn't prove to the skeptic anything because it wouldn't, it wouldn't be any different than what's happening on a regular basis. So the skeptic in this idea has given himself any way out. If you say, well, You've never seen a resurrection. He says, that's right, and that's why I don't believe it. But if he had seen several, he would say, well, people resurrect all the time. There's no reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, once the skeptic denies the existence of God, then he says miracles are impossible. But denying the existence of God is impossible if you honestly and logically look at all the evidence available. In fact, in our first, first Pillars of Faith series, we have a lecture titled The Existence of God where we go through multiple proofs showing that God exists. If you can prove that God exists, and you can, then wouldn't it make sense that that God would use miracles on occasion to communicate a message to people that he wanted them to understand was a message from a 
God and not from their fellow humans. What would be the best way to show that the message was coming from something other than a human? Well, to provide superhuman, supernatural intervention so that you could see, well, this isn't a human message. This is a message from God. If you can prove that God exists, then miracles make perfect sense. If God does exist, and He wanted to show the world that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, what would you expect Him to use? Miracles. And dealing with people like Richard Carrier, you can see from the outset that it doesn't matter what you show him. It doesn't matter how much evidence is available. He simply is never going to believe in the resurrection because he's never seen one. But if he would follow through with that logic, he would realize he believes all kinds of things that he's never seen. And that argument doesn't hold water. Why are we dealing with the resurrection? How important is it that Jesus really came back from the dead? You know, there are some people who would say that historical aspect of the story of Christ isn't all that important. It's really the moral teachings and the theological implications. You know, whether or not Jesus came back from the dead, that, that, that's a kind of just a little side point. But that's not what the Apostle Peter taught. And that not, that's not what the Apostle Paul taught. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 and 17, he said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Paul said, if Christ didn't come back from the dead, everything you Christians are doing is useless. But if Christ did, if Christ really did come back from the dead, then that means if you're following Christ, you will come back from the dead. How important is the resurrection of Christ? Establishing the resurrection of Christ is the fundamental truth that has to be established in order for Christianity to make any sense at all. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Bottom line. Now, the apostles, the historical New Testament documents, present the resurrection as a historical fact that happened in time and space. What I mean by that is, they present it as something that truly did occur. How can we prove that the resurrection of Christ truly did occur? The first thing that we would look to is the New Testament. The documents that mention the resurrection of Christ. When you do that, you realize that the documents you are dealing with in the New Testament are the most historically accurate documents ever penned. Those coupled with the documents of the Old Testament. Every time the New Testament documents ever make a statement, if you can check it, that statement is exactly right. And by if you can check it, what I mean is if you go to the pool of Bethesda that was discussed in the New Testament, and if that city is still there, you can dig where it says, and there will be the pool of Bethesda. If you compare the statements of Acts to the political history that's recorded by the Romans, you will see that whenever Luke mentions someone in Acts 
as a political leader. That person was the political leader at that time. If you ever look at the geographical and topographical statements in the New Testament, every single one of them is exactly right every single time. So in order to throw out the story of the resurrection, you would have to say, okay, the New Testament is right here, 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 here. But when it talks about the resurrection, it's not right. You're telling me that that's the only place in all of the Scripture that is not right? Well, why are you tossing out the resurrection when you don't toss out all of these other things? Well, because I've never seen anyone rise from the dead. That's why they would toss out the resurrection. Not because the historical proof is not there, but because they have a prejudicial bias against miracles and resurrections in the first place. But not only is the New Testament recorded in the most accurate historical documents ever, these documents do not contradict one another. You see, the skeptic often says, well, hold on just a second. Those New Testament documents, you can say they're historically accurate, and, well, you might be right, but sometimes one of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, makes a statement that sounds contradictory to Mark or Luke or John. And if you're saying that Matthew's true, but it makes a statement that's different than Mark, then you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that they're both right. So what you've got in one of the words of a skeptic, he said, you've got an embarrassing multitude of stories of the resurrection. He's right about one thing. We do have a multitude of stories. But it's not an embarrassing multitude because what the skeptic calls a contradiction is nothing of the sort. In fact, generally speaking, what the skeptic calls a contradiction is simply a supplementary statement. Read the following verses with me. I want you to look at Matthew 28.1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. Now if I were just to ask you a very simple question, who came to the tomb according to Matthew 28.1? You would see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That's easy to understand, not difficult to comprehend. Now, if you read Mark 16.1, Now when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. John 21, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came. Honestly, are these statements very different? Sure they are. Very different. The skeptic says, well, they're so different. That they're contradictory. Well, hold on just a second. Suppose that uh, two people, uh, a man and his wife, go to the shopping mall. And at the shopping mall, while they are going to various stores, the man after the shopping mall trip calls his friend. And the friend says, well, what did you do today? And the man says, well, I went to the shopping mall. The friend says, oh, really? What did you see there? He said, well, we went to the hunting store. I got my new camouflage jacket. We stopped over at Cinnabon. I ate one of those huge, big old cinnamon rolls. And it was a great time. Now, according to this man's story, where did he and his wife go? They went to the hunting store, and then they stopped at the Cinnabon. Well, the wife gets a call from one of her friends. Her friend says, hey, what did you do today? She said, oh, I went to the mall with my husband. Now, she mentions that she went with her husband. The husband didn't mention that he went with the wife. Does that mean he didn't go with the wife? 
just because he didn't mention it? But then he says, then she says rather, oh, and got this great new perfume, and we stopped over, and I got the grandkids some pajamas. They were three ninety nine at Gap, and then we went, and I got some coffee at Starbucks. It was a great time. Now put those two statements together. The man says he went to the hunting store. doesn't mention that he went with his wife, and he says he ate a Cinnabon. The woman says she went with her husband. She got pajamas. She stopped at Starbucks. And got new perfume. Do those statements sound very different? Oh yeah. Are they contradictory? No. They sound different, but they're not contradictory. When you read these statements, do any of these statements make it so that the other one cannot be true? Does John say Mary Magdalene is the only woman who came to the tomb? Absolutely not. Does Matthew say Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are the only people who came to the tomb? No. Are there reasons why these accounts would differ? Oh, yeah. In fact, one major reason. Do you know what the skeptic says when you have two Bible passages that almost mirror one another? You've got Jude and you've got Second Peter. And a chapter of Second Peter sounds very similar to Jude. So you know what they say? Well, Jude just copied Peter. Or Peter just copied Jude. What if every single one of the New Testament accounts of the resurrection sounded identical? What would the skeptic say? Well, they're just copying each other. It's no wonder they're all right because they've colluded together. You know what collusion is? Collusion is where, suppose you have four people who rob a bank. And those four people get together and they say, here's the story we're going to tell to the police when they come. When the police come, you tell them that we were at John's house playing cards at 12 o'clock and we stayed there till 4. And the police knock on the door of the first one. He says, John's house, 12 o'clock to 4. Next one, John's house, 12 o'clock to 4. Next one, John's house. All the stories sound identical. Well, why do they all sound identical? Because they colluded together to fabricate a story. Do you know what the skeptic would say if all of the accounts of the resurrection sounded identical? Well, they just copied one another. They just colluded together. Do you know what God has done in giving differing differing accounts that don't contradict each other? Well, He's made it so that the skeptic has to say there's a multitude of accounts. But then He's designed it in such a way that they can't say they contradict. And if they do say they're contradictory, you can show that they're not. So that what the skeptic ends up with is, oh yeah, you guys got several witnesses from unique perspectives that show that they didn't collude together. What else do you have in the resurrection account? Well, you have evidence that the resurrection was foretold. You see, it's one thing to have an amazing event like the resurrection to occur. In fact, several resurrections did occur. Eric is going to get into some of that in a later later lesson. But it's another thing to predict it and it to come about exactly as it has been predicted in spite of very stringent preventative measures. You see, all the way back in Psalm 16, The psalmist wrote, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You're not going to allow my body to decay. And then, 
Jesus, when He was here on this earth, on numerous occasions, mentioned that He would come back from the grave. In fact, His message was so lucid, so clear, that His rivals and enemies, the Jewish leaders, went to Pilate and they said, this deceiver said that after three days He would rise from the dead. Now, what we would like from you is a, ta- is a detachment of troops that we can put at the tomb so that His disciples don't come and steal His body so that the latter deception is not worse than the first. Did His enemies know that He predicted He was going to come back from the dead? dead? Yeah, they did. Did they know when? To the day. And yet it happened anyway. Foretold, predicted, exactly like Jesus had said Furthermore, it is an irrefutable fact that the tomb of Christ was empty. The New Testament documents state that. The Sanhedrin concocted a story after the resurrection of Christ and they issued a letter And that letter went like this. A godless and lawless heresy had sprung up from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver, whom we crucified. But his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid, when unfastened from the cross, and now deceived men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. If anybody wanted to say that the tomb still had the body of Jesus in it, guess who it was? The Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish tribunal that sent Jesus to the cross. You know the only thing that they would have had to have done to refute the teaching of the apostles? Well, go to the tomb. There's the body of Jesus. It's still in the tomb where He was laid. Do you know why Joseph of Arimathea was put into play to bury Jesus? Do you know how prominent Joseph of Arimathea was? The people in the first century would have known the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a leader in the Jewish community, a respected leader in the Jewish community. If you wanted to know where Jesus was buried, go ask Joseph. He buried him. And you guys know Joseph because he's been one of the leaders of the Jewish community for the last 10, 15, 20 years. So respected that he's on one of our highest courts. Now let's look at the story that they tell about why the tomb is empty. First realize they recognize the tomb's empty. Now what's their explanation? Well, his disciples came and stole him while the soldiers... Slept. Well, now that is saying something. You ever tried to find out what's going on while you're sleeping? You know, I've fallen asleep in lots of instances. And there have been lots of things that have happened while I have been asleep. And when I awoke, I couldn't testify accurately to anything that happened while I was asleep. Quick question, if the soldiers really were asleep, How did they know what happened to the body of Jesus? They certainly couldn't have said that His disciples stole Him because they were asleep. And just as a side note, 
the Jewish leaders sealed the tomb with a rock so heavy that the women who were coming to the tomb wondered how they would move it. So the disciples moved a several hundred pound rock so silently that it didn't wake up the soldiers. And Joseph of Arimathea was so prominent that you could ask him where Jesus was buried and he would go and show you that tomb and that rock if you wanted. So you go to the tomb of Jesus if you're a first century Jew and you decide to investigate and you see this tomb and there's a huge rock that has been moved but supposedly the soldiers slept through the moving of the rock. Oh, and then added on to that idea, do you know what happened to soldiers when they lost their charges? By their charges, I mean the people they were supposed to be looking out for. Maybe you'll remember when Peter was miraculously removed from prison. Herod sent to call Peter out and he wasn't there. So what did Herod do to the soldiers? Killed them all. Maybe you'll recall the story of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. The earthquake that occurred and the Philippian jailer comes in, sees that the doors are open, so what's he going to do? Kill himself. Why? Because if you're a soldier and you lose the people you're supposed to keep under chains or whatever it is you're supposed to do to them, if you lose them, you get killed. That's secular knowledge. You don't have to have the Bible to know that. So the Sanhedrin says that there are a bunch of soldiers that slept through the disciples moving a huge stone, didn't wake up, but then could say that it was the disciples of Christ and nothing happened to them. They didn't die and they weren't punished. Well, how much sense does that make? And when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost in the middle of Jerusalem and says, Jesus, you crucified the Son of God, explains that Jesus was the Messiah and is the Messiah, what's the challenge to all of those in Jerusalem? He says, you won't allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Peter was delivering this message in Jerusalem. What did the people have to do to prove that Jesus was still in the tomb? Simple. Anybody that wanted to, walk down to the tomb and check it. But anybody that wanted to, who did walk down to the tomb, found out it was empty. So even the Sanhedrin had to come up with some kind of story as to why it was empty. But not only that, the resurrection is confirmed by eyewitness testimony. If you were to ask yourself, what could God have done, or what could have been done, to preserve the story of the resurrection for all time if it happened in the first century. Were there any cameras in the first century? Any videotapes? What would have been the way to preserve a message? You know, several of the skeptics say, well, if, if I saw a videotape of Jesus rising from the dead or His body going through the wall after His resurrection, I'd believe it. Oh, really? You know, I've seen several movies where it looked like people could go through walls and people came back from the dead. I didn't believe in one of those. You can do all kinds of things to video, to pictures. What would have been the most powerful
evidence that you could present. Well, I'm going to lay it down for you twofold. Number one, it would have been eyewitness testimony. In fact, still today are huge, very, very important, monumental court decisions made on the testimony of eyewitnesses every day. Every day in this country and throughout the world. The apostles presented themselves as eyewitnesses. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1.16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 1 Corinthians chapter 15.3-8, the apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Peter saw him. The other apostles saw him. 500 brethren saw him. Most of them are still alive. Why do you think Paul said most of those 500 brethren who saw Jesus rise from the dead are still alive? What's the challenge? Go ask them yourself. You don't believe me? we got 500 brethren who saw Jesus. Go ask them. I saw Jesus. But you know what, have been, what would have been even more powerful than an eyewitness to the resurrection? What would have been more powerful is an eyewitness who suffered for his testimony. You see, suppose that a person claims that something is a fact. But then suppose that that person is tortured, is punished, is abused. And all the while, that person clings to the statement that he or she has made and demands that it is a fact. And that torture and punishment goes so far that that person is killed, but that person never takes back his statement. He says, Yes, Jesus Christ rose. And it doesn't matter what you do to me, I will claim that to my dying breath. And you behead the man. And he doesn't change. And you crucify him like Peter and Andrew were crucified. And his story doesn't change. And you thrust him through with a spear as tradition tells us happened to Thomas. And he clings to his story. And you cut off his head like they did to Matthias and Paul. and They don't change their story. And you kill him with a sword. And they cling to the factual accuracy of the resurrection. The skeptic says, well, hold on just a second. He says, people die for their religion all the time. How sure they do. In fact, you know lots of religions or religious sects or cults that you can easily, in your mind, see them strapping on a bomb 
getting into a car and blowing themselves up along with several other people that they would consider to be ungodly infidels. That's nothing new. People have been dying for their religions for years. So what's the difference in the apostles dying for the testimony of the resurrection and religious zealots dying for their religion? Well, I believe Wayne Jackson's statement nails this idea when he said, while men may die out of religious deception, they do not willingly go to their deaths knowing they are perpetrating a hoax. You see, the difference between the apostles and people who would die for their religion is that the apostles were claiming that Jesus Christ died and that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And they were not religiously motivated other than what they were saying they believed to be fully factual. If a person knew that what they were dying for was false, would you see a group of those people clinging to a false statement all the while knowing that it's false? And when you look at the writings of the apostles. One of the foremost injunctions on the people who were following the apostles, who were reading their writings, was that they tell the truth. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, said, let's lay aside all lying and speak truth to our neighbors. The New Testament documents are filled with the idea that you need to be telling the truth. So... The gainsayers of the testimony of the apostles are saying that the apostles lied about the resurrection and all died even though they knew that the resurrection was false. That does not make any sense whatsoever. What would have been the most powerful evidence that you could have accrued to prove the factual, historical nature of the resurrection, if you could have shown the resurrected body of Christ to a band of powerful believers who would have clung to the factual accuracy of their statements in the face of death, that would have been the most powerful evidence that you could amass, the most powerful evidence that you could record surpassing any picture or photograph or video. Richard Carrier says, I don't buy the resurrection because I've never seen one. I would suggest to Richard Carrier that the reason every human is forced to believe in the story of Jesus and the resurrection is because that story is the most historically documented well-preserved historical reality that ever occurred. If you cannot believe the resurrection, you cannot know a single thing historically. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead in Judea some 2,000 years ago? The overwhelming 
resounding answer to that question by anyone who is honest has to be yes. Yes. 